the intersection of success and spirituality podcast, episode number 122, top 10 moments of the show's second year, 2018. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Intersection of Success and Spirituality, a podcast where our goals up high performers and achievers with their spiritual life. And 2018 is past and 2019 is upon us, so I join with you in celebrating, reminiscing, reflecting on everything 2018 was. I join you in anticipating what is to come in this new year in your career family, life, and spiritual walk. 2018 was a year where we had CEOs, New York Times bestselling authors, spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, trailblazers in a number of fields. And in this episode, we're highlighting the top 10 moments. The, these are those moments that challenged our paradigms, made us cry, provoked us to look within, and planted a seed that changed the trajectories of our lives. Among these moments we're highlighting in this episode, you'll hear from the likes of Paul Hockemeyer, therapist to high achievers, J.P. Dominguez, producer for Haslow Media, Alicia Britt-Scholey, who's a spiritual director, among many others. But before going any further, I simply want to thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for the messages, feedback, and guest suggestions. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being a part of this community. And so, you know, if you listen to a segment that resonates with you and you want to know who is speaking in our show notes, which are available for each episode on my website, joshuagaldas.com, you can find there links to the actual episode and listen to the whole thing. But without saying anything more, here are the top 10 moments of the second year of the show, 2018. As I, as I was getting ready for, for speaking with you today, I've heard you in previous instances talk about the addictive nature of fame. And I think this is a very, very interesting topic because I think for a moment in history, um, technology is shifting the waves of things where more people can actually tap into how it feels to be famous. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm just intrigued for the the young girl, the middle schooler, the high schooler, uh, the person building a platform in their industry, the CEO, um, the vlogger, uh, the person of influence in whatever spectrum or context. What is it about fame that is so addictive? There are two main qualities of addiction that, that are important here. The first is the notion of tolerance, uh, and the second is withdrawal. So tolerance need, means that we need more and more of the baseline behavior to <laughs> attain the same level of satisfaction. So 
today I have a thousand Twitter followers, um, uh, then uh, that's not enough. I, I so I get a little I get a little ping. I get a little high from that. But then, oh my God, tomorrow I need two thousand. So 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 the baseline, the the level of satisfaction keeps on getting raised ad infinitum. And then the second level, the second point of the analysis is the withdrawal. So if I'm not constantly adding to that, then I am paralyzed by you know I get overcome by anxiety or fear. It's like oh my God, I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm I'm losing ground. And that's what happens with celebrity. And and it impacts our brain. There's something organic. It, this isn't like a personality construct. It's, there's actually an organic feature to this by mm-hmm. the way that our brains are wired. So you post something on Facebook, you get a couple hundred likes. All of a sudden, the reward circuitry of your brain kicks in and releases serotonin and dopamine, and it makes you feel amazing, right? I mean, we've, we've all had that, right? I'm certain sure that you've had that. Yeah. I've certainly had that. And then you get used to that high. You're like, oh my god, I want that again. I want that. You know, that that was amazing. And then there's this physical craving that sets in. It's like I want that again. And then you do it again, and boom, you get that euphoria for an hour or so, and then it goes away. And then you want it again. So um, it's just sort of this never-ending physiological reaction that. that that sets in this mm. the phenomenon mm. of, of craving, similar to a heroin addict, right? He gets, he gets that high from heroin and that incredible euphoria, and then it, it wears off, and, they, and every every cell in their in their being craves that. So it's a very sim- it's, it's it's a very similar phenomenon. At some point, you mentioned this story with one of your kids, and there's this one phrase that you say: "You say I'd trade ten broken plates." for his smile of competence and pride. And you were talking about uh, the story of your kids uh, helping out in the home and specifically with the dishes. And Mm -hmm. what I saw in there is what you're referring to is the process, Mm -hmm. the messiness, and the imperfection that comes along the way and the journey. Uh, A lot of people, uh, they probably want the end result of Mm -hmm. their kids becoming independent, but they're not too fond about the broken plates along the journey. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm a perfectionist. I'm a neat person. I I like things the way I like them. And that was probably one of the hardest parts for me. And, you know, it, it starts with, you know, letting go of, uh, just thinking, I, for me, I think the be- the best way to come at it is first of all to start thinking more long term about your kid. Think, you know, what it's not about this emergency right now. How do I, how I want my house to look right at this second, or how this homework assignment right now has to look. But in six months, what do I want my kid to be able to do on their own, or in a year, in five years, or in six years, or whatever that thing that timeline is? That if we could get our brains off of the emergency of right now and start thinking more long term for our kids. And you you use the word process. I think part of that, we have to start thinking about the process and get our brains off of the product so much. Stop focusing on the product, whether that's a grade or whether that's, you know, this perfect image you have of, of a kid doing something perfectly in the end, I think we have to get a lot more focused on the process. And that's what, as a teacher, I love so much is that, you know, especially when I get to teach kids for multiple years in a row, as I did when I taught middle school, I taught sixth, seventh and eighth grade, I could always be thinking about 
where I want the student to be at the end of eighth grade as opposed to where I need them to be at the end of the lesson today. And I try to think about my teaching as, you know, what do I want them to know in five years as opposed to what I want them to know on the test next Friday. That always allows me as a parent and as a teacher to cut myself a break and say, okay, (laughs) it's not as nothing is as urgent as it sort of feels in the moment if you start thinking more long term. And, you know, and partly it's also a mindset shift about, you know, do I do I care about stuff more than I care about my child's ability to be competent? And the answer to that has to be no. I, you know, I don't, I don't care about a dish or a plate or, you know, something going through the dishwasher perfectly more than I care about my kid's ability to, to fend for himself and to, to do things himself. Um, learned helplessness sneaks up on us. And I used to call it feigned helplessness because that's what it felt like to me. But then I started talking to to psychologists and they're like, no, 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 that's learned helplessness. And you're teaching our, you're teaching your kids to be helpless when you keep taking stuff away from them and saying, no, 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 just let me do that. Um, and that's I, the last thing I ever would want to do is to raise my children to be helpless. So we're about to close our time together, but those that are listening, we're talking a little bit about the art of feeding heroes, leading from the inside out. If there's maybe one thing that you want people to get gleaned out of this conversation and just this book, what would that be? I believe that uh, every single person has the ability to be heroic. And some of us are doing it every day and we don't see it because it's like, oh, I'm just taking care of my elderly parent. Oh, I'm just a mom at home with toddlers. Oh, I'm just a dad going to work every day and it's hard. And, you know, heroism Mm -hmm. is the spirit with which you engage your circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so I think it has so many faces and it's not this idea of perfection and it's not this... uh, impenetrable person that can, you know, bullets Mm. bounce off of them, but it's really that willingness to Mm. engage and to suffer and to get up and to go again. Uh, And it's, there's a tenacity and a grit in it that I think is so human and so beautiful. And that Mm. would be my heart to, to really impart through the book that people could see themselves in that space, in whatever season of life they're in and in whatever circumstances they're in, that that's a choice. That's a possibility. So in addition to writing books, you also have a blog, as you mentioned earlier. And one of the blog posts that truly captivated my attention was one that I'd like to talk a bit about, but the title of it is When Your Kids Won't Bow to Your Idols. And you mentioned a quote by Dan Allender. Uh, I'm going to read it right now. It says, one of the biggest sources of conflict between you and your kids is when they refuse to bow down to your idols. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's big. (laughs) How has that really impacted the posture of your heart, impacted maybe you looking at the idols in your own life and just interacting with your kids? Oh, it's been huge. Um, I probably heard that quote, I think it's probably been 12, uh, yeah, maybe 10 years ago. And, and it has stuck with me as the most profound quote about parenting. You know, I talked about earlier about being a perfectionist and being a high achiever. 
And so when I had kids, that just translated, you know, I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to knock this out of the park. I'm going to do it right. My kids will obey me the first time. They will be respectful. They will sleep through the night as soon as they come home from the hospital. You know, like <laughs> I, um, I got this, you know, A plus B will equal C. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, our first child, he did not do what the book said. And um, I had my predominant emotion during that time was anger, you know, and then same thing. Our second child came around and uh, he may have been a good baby, but boy, when he hit two, Lord help us. (laughs) Uh Um, And it didn't matter what I did and how I was following, you know, what the book said about discipline or whatever he would, he just would have none of it. And my predominant emotion was anger. And so you think about you know, the biggest source of conflict is when our kids won't bow down to our idols. And I can look back in that time and see I was taking good things and, bec- and turning them into ultimate things. So is it, you know, is it wrong to want your child to obey or to be respectful or to be on a, on a good routine and sleep schedule? No, like those are all good desires that we should pursue but I'd made them ultimate things. They become idols in my life and my kids were not bowing down to them. And so I was angry. So being able to see this, it it really has helped. It's kind of, you know, what I was talking about back at the crazy train, book. it really has helped me see when I look at my emotions and my responses towards my kids, I'll say, whoa, you know, what is actually going on to uh, on here? What am I holding on to mm-hmm. too tightly? Is it my reputation as a mom? You know, is it my kid's academic or athletic success? And, you know, when life is not getting in line or they're not getting in line, my concern, you know, my concern for them is not their well-being or their holiness. It's it's these idols that I'm holding on to. It's my reputation. It's, you know, my picture of how I think that they should be. And what's happened is I feel like even though, gosh, you know, I, I still fail at this often, um, I think it's changed the posture of my parenting to one of humility hmm. and being able to, instead of this, you know, me above them and how dare you and get in line, it's I can come alongside them and say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior as much as you are. We're on the same team. We're on the same side. And it really has been a heart check for me in the moments that I've been upset at my kids or, you know, insisting on things um, to think, okay, what, what exactly am I protecting here? What am I holding on to too tightly? And that's causing me to, you know, respond to them in this way. We're about to go to our closing set of questions, but one more thing that I wanted to explore that you talk about in the book is there's a chapter called The Myth of Materialism. (laughs) And we live in a, you know, interesting context and time and uh, which uh, people want the next iPhone X, uh, this car, uh, social media, we're comparing ourselves with one another. Uh, For those that will be reading the book, there's a contrast that you talk about between envy and jealousy, Mm -hmm. uh, but specifically talking about materialism, Mm -hmm. the myth of materialism. uh, What do you mean by that? And what are you trying to get at in that chapter? 
I think especially in our, our culture here today, we're in the wealthiest culture on the, in the history of humanity. Uh, if you go to Skid Row down in Los Angeles, these people all have cell phones. I mean, it's freaky how, how wealthy we are. And, and it's easy for us to be seduced into thinking that materialism is the answer. Uh, the answer to life is really going to be a spiritual answer, not a material answer. But because we're physical beings, we get seduced into thinking that a physical thing is going to give me the satisfaction that I look for. And the myth of materialism really capitalizes on consumerism. And what we, we fail to understand is materialism is different than consumerism. In our culture today, we are caught up in a consumerist culture. And consumerism really is the addiction to desire. So I desire the new X phone, but once I have it, I don't really want it, I want the next thing. You know, as soon as you have the thing that you think you wanted, you're looking around for whatever the next newest thing is, which is why my uh, my phone is planned obsolescence. They know it's only going to last three or four years, and then it's going to be obsolete. The, the The software upgrade itself makes my phone obsolete within three years, and that fits with our culture. We're co- a consumerist culture. I need to desire the next thing. So what we've done in our culture today is we're addicted not so much to material things, we're addicted to the feeling of desire and that that is never satisfied. I need to desire the next thing, desire the next thing, desire the next thing. So I need to just keep spending and spending and sending things back and buying something else and sending it back, which is why Amazon is so hugely, hugely popular. And that addiction is to medicate us against the deeper hunger in life. That deeper hunger is a spiritual longing for something that is satisfying. And that's only gonna come through a relationship. That true satisfaction comes relationally, not materially. Mm. And the consumerist myth is that if you keep pursuing material things that never satisfy, and you get addicted to the pursuit of desire, you're gonna medicate yourself against that hunger that we all feel that's a relational hunger. I'm actually looking for a satisfying relationship with God and others. And if only it'll only be when I address that relational hunger that I'm satisfied. And the myth of materialism keeps us all medicated against that, thinking that, yeah, I feel pretty good, but wait a minute, what's, what's coming after the X phone? Isn't it going to be something after the X phone? You know, we're addicted to that, that, that uh, illusion that I'm satisfied, but it's only momentary. Uh, consumerism keeps us momentarily satisfied, mm. just like a drug. Just like a drug. As a woman, what are some of the... I've heard you at times talk about the ways there's covert and overt sexism in the workplace. And just in your own life journey for the men listening to our show, uh, what is something that they should be aware of? And for the women listening to our show, how have you been able to rise above those? One of the things that I realize that... I catch, catch myself doing, but this is a challenge. And I was at a conference for ATS and I learned some some facts that a lot of times when men are like being interviewed for a job or sought for a position, they're, if they don't have all of the experience on their resume, they're looked at as like for their potential. Huh. He has a lot of potential to grow into this. But when they look at women for a role, they look at what they've accomplished and achieved already. Wow. Not based on their potential. And so that, what, what, what's the double bind with that is that for ministry, a lot of women have not had opportunities to have formal ministry positions. And so when they're trying to be up for a position or trying to join a staff or become groomed or, or, or shaped or prepared or want to go into ministry, uh, they don't have the resume of another person 
who might have had opportunities to be a youth pastor while he was in college or to have uh, be a college pastor while he's in seminary. They don't have formal paid or intern positions. And so we also have to recognize that if we really care about women in ministry, we also have to not uh, create different, we have to be aware that sometimes they might not have all the things on the resume that a guy might have, um, but that doesn't negate their potential or their even current capacity. But I you know, um, find myself really being hard on myself to make sure that I check off all the boxes. And it's journey, I didn't know this statistic, and it was a revelation to me because it rang true to my experience. That I'm aware of the fact that when people are like, oh, should she preach or speak? Not at my church. My church is super affirming and supportive of women in ministry, of me in ministry. Uh, but elsewhere, it's like they look, they, they, they're like, they're not, they're not sure. Like, does she have what it takes? Does she have the credentials? And so there, I'm this, I had this intuitive awareness, the sense that, like, you got to have all of these things in place in order to not be uh, disregarded or in order to not uh, to even be a contender for certain things. So when I tell women who want to go into ministry, I encourage them to consider seminary. Do you need to be in seminary to become a pastor? No, there are many people who go to seminary after they become pastors or during their journey because they realize they really want a theological education. But I can't say that that might be the case for a church trying to hire a woman. Without an MDiv, they may not even consider her. And that is a reality that it's one thing, it's frustrating. On the other hand, you have to deal with it. And that, that, that tension of you want to change how people perceive and, and hire and approach the uh, credibility and the capacity of women. But you also have to realize how it works and work with that and not be ignorant of those uh, dynamics. Uh, when I think of different, there's different occupations in life. Um, and uh, when people think of doctors or lawyers or architects, there's a certain sense of prestige. But as you were mentioning, there's this part of you that consistently is drawn towards people that are on the fringes, people that maybe are of different socioeconomic status than um, the one that you found yourself in different parts of your journey. Do you ever see a tension between those two? And what moves you from being this place to say, you know, I'm willing to get my hands dirty and be a part of their journey as well and not just use my prestige for my own self? I was raised by a mom who always told my little brother and I that let's say if it was the lady who came and helped us at the house, right, who would, who would come and clean, she would say, take a, a look at, at her, and we would look at her and she says, today she's cleaning our house because God has allowed us to, to um, have someone clean our house. But tomorrow you may be knocking on her door to clean her house if God wants. And then that reality and that perspective, I've always taken and said, you know what, that's true. God can change your situation with the snap of the fingers and you never know what's going to happen. So you may be in a place today, but that can change tomorrow if God wants. So never be satisfied or happy with the current place you're in. And on that same note, my mom has also raised us with representing those that need help that need voices since we were little. And that stems from Josh as well. Because if we never uh, advocated for Josh, if we never said, oh, we're going to fight against the district, we're not going to believe the principal when he says he's never going to graduate high school. Mm -hmm. We're not going to believe the principal when they say, oh, he's going to graduate high school. Great. He passed the Casey exams. He's never going to go to college. He shouldn't go to a four-year university. He did it. That stems from 
my mom who was came to this country undocumented. I was born from a mom who did not have status in this country. So yeah, when I hear people come so negatively against a community that here is fighting for the futures of their families, it does irk me because yeah, that was my mom. That could have been my mom still. If she never was able to get status, that could have been my mom. You know, I've had other family members who are also undocumented as well. So, and, and so where does that stem from? That stems from my upbringing and in the situations that I've had. And then also seeing that the other side's perspective and the way that they just belittle and demean our community sometimes is wrong and mm. needs it needs to have another voice that counteracts that. Mm. So I've always been passionate about that. And I feel like if I didn't have that upbringing, if I didn't have those situations happen in my life, maybe I wouldn't. Mm. And that's the reality yeah. of the situation. That's why a lot of people these days are, are just arguing and arguing and arguing because they don't want to understand each other. Sometimes. And sometimes when you're also, this is not just older generations, but also when you've gone up the ladder of hierarchy, it's it's kind of hard to give potentially some of the power, the influence, the mm-hmm. thing that you've built. And we were talking about that in your life, uh, you've moved towards wanting to not only hold what you've built, but give it away, which is yeah. insane. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I think the listeners are going to think that I'm, I'm a little out there, but I, I have these great experiences with God and I, and I, I don't apologize for them. I just do. And they've been really shifting moments for me. And so I'm a storyteller, so I'll share a little story. And, uh, so I was up in San Luis Obispo at my wife's parents' place, and they have this beautiful property of 10 acres of all this land, and sitting in the backyard, and there's this huge oak tree, and uh, just, it was one of those rare moments, all the kids are gone, it's just me, God, and an oak tree. And I felt like this little Amos moment, like, you know, what do you see? And so I'm like, okay, Lord, and I saw, I see the branches, and I see life, and this tree is massive and um, I see all the good things about the tree and the life of it and recognizing that my father-in-law had built some things on his property and it's one of those trees that survived and and again the Lord's like what do you see and I'm speaking to all the fruitful things all the things Mm -hmm. that bring life and and you know I've done this long enough where it's like when he keeps asking the same question it means I don't have the right answer right Mm -hmm. and so I looked at the trunk and I said hey I see a trunk and I it I can only say that you just you just feel God's pleasure of like okay finally Fraser you knucklehead you're you're getting what I'm trying to get you to right and <laughs> and so I began des- describing the trunk you know that it's it's weathered and it's beaten and it's wide and it's deeply rooted and and it was really at that moment the Lord said would you be willing to be a trunk in the kingdom and at the time He shared it with me I was like still in my mind, I was like, hey, I still have a lot to give. I could still be kind of a branch, but bearing a lot of fruit. Um, I don't think I want to be a trunk. And, you know, you can say no to the Lord. You can. He's he's gracious. But eventually, you know, he said, do you want plan A or plan B? And so we just wrestled with that. And I remember sharing with Joanne later that night. It's like, you know, I think the Lord wants me to be a trunk in the kingdom. And she's like, well, what does that mean? I said, that my, my role will be just to support other branches. And that we may never be looked at, we may never be regarded, but our our joy will be the fact that these amazing branches that bear much fruit um, will have a very stable and steady place to grow from. And then, you know, in some of the circles we run with, the statement is, you know, let our ceiling be the next generation's floor. And it's a similar concept. It's just, if we can give it away by, you know, pers- you know, presenting a place of stability, of care, um, all that we've learned, both good and bad. I, I really feel like the things that we learn 
are supposed to be given away. Mm-hmm. And some people are like, no, they need to learn the struggle. And I, I'm not so convinced of that. I think there are plenty of things that God will have a struggle and suffer through and learn the lesson of not my will, but your will be done. But I do think that there are certain things that I'm supposed to pioneer on the next generation's behalf so that they have greater breakthrough than I've experienced. I don't see why God would want them to work through that. Now, does he want to form our character? Of course he does. Um, Does he want us to learn how to steward things well? Absolutely. But I do think that there's some principles in the kingdom of saying, the more I can give away to the next generation, the more they will be able to succeed with what God puts in their hand. Mm So that, that, that's, a, that's a moving thing, encounter and all, but mm. within that journey, have yeah. there been moments where just a part of your heart, it's a process where it is hard to let go. It is Absolutely. difficult. Tell us about maybe potentially the frustrations, the thoughts, the afterthoughts, yeah. fears that you've had sure. along that journey. Well, you know, there's that phrase, collateral beauty. It's beautiful and horrible at the same time Um, because you never want to let go. And, you know, let's just be honest. There's always a little bit in every one of us that, Mm. hey, look at me. I'm doing good stuff. Applaud me, right? And um, so there's that whole inner tension of the formation of that that's really difficult and constant. And then here's the thing I think that's been the hardest part of it. When what you've given away is bearing more fruit than you could ever imagine through them and not you, I mean, you wrestle with all the pride things, all of that. But I think it's the moment where you let them go. Mm. And it's that big question, you know, will you do it again? And, you know, I find myself in that season right now of just contemplating. I just, you know, transitioned someone that I deeply love and so proud of and excited for their journey. And But it's that question of like, God, do I have it in the tank to do this again? Because it's painful. It's painful to raise people up and then see them grow and succeed and surpass you in some ways, which is fantastic Mm -hmm. on paper, but hard on the heart. Mm -hmm. Because it is a constant, okay, God, I'm giving it away. And really the only solution is, if I'm really giving away what's his already, then I got to trust that he'll fill it up again. And so... But I think a little part of ourselves are released in it. And, you know, what is it in John 3, right? Just he will increase, I will decrease. I mean, that's a cool prayer, right? (laughs) Not so fun to live out, man. Not so fun to live out. Yeah. I can agree. The other day we were conversing, and you mentioned that one of the questions that you sometimes just simply ask your wife is just, and it's a very deep question, just simply, how's your heart? Mm. And... That fascinated me. Um, Why that question? And what is there to find in that question? Mm. Your memory is incredible. Um, (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Yeah, you know, I think... I think that question of how is your heart really stemmed from when we first started dating. And I love defining things. I I love being able to craft content, as you can see um, with the book, or just ways to think through things that help people think deeper and harder about stuff. And I I just don't like the normal questions of like, hey, good morning, how'd you sleep? What'd you eat for lunch? Like, you know, there's some part of me that kind of cares. And then there's some part of me that's <laughs> like, I want to know what's going on in the deepest part of you too. Um, and, and time is of time is of the essence in so many people's lives and i i'd rather spend a whole lot more time about about hearing about the deeper things with my wife or about you or, or, or about whomever it would be that i'm speaking with rather than you know the the surface level superficial 
you know, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you doing? And much like you, you talked about, like, explain that to me, you know? And I think um, more than anything, when we phrase that, that, that question, that was really our, our place of deeper connection in, in conversation. Mm. And it's turned into a place of, of deeper connection and conversation with many people in our lives. And mm. yeah, we, I, I can't imagine asking, asking other questions on, on that place. Because when you think of the heart, you think of the center of a person. Um, you don't just think, I mean, some people think of emotions, some people think of thoughts, some people think of, you know, whatever it may be. So when I'm, when I'm asking, I'm really just asking, how, how is it with you? You know, what is going on with, with you? I want to know the, the height, the depth, the length, the width, you know, what, what were the happy things? What were the not so happy things? What, what really is, is God working in you? What are you working on? What, what's going on within you? So if I can rephrase, and you feel free to tell me if I've missed the mark, absolutely let me know if I've missed the question. Absolutely. So I think you're saying, so like for you, one of your loves is language. Mm-hmm. So what do you do as a professional when what you need to do uses what you love so much to the point that it actually can gut its pleasure from your soul? To a certain degree, that's part of it. But what I'm really getting at is what do you do when Something that you began with, with this childlike sense of pleasure, wonder, and imagination and passion, all of a sudden encounters the weight of expectations. When the scientists that loved discovering things all of a sudden has people above them with expectations. The teacher that for the joy of seeing the impacts that they could do on the lives of others all of a sudden has curveballs, parents, principals, and different standardized things they have to deal with. What do you do when something you love to do all of a sudden gets these expectations thrown on it? That's a beautiful question, a very practical one as well. Like you, Joshua, I love words. In fact, my parents would, when I was a kid, <laughs> when I was staying up too late, and they would find me, you know, covered in a blanket with a flashlight reading what I was reading, true story, is the dictionary. I just loved words. I would take a letter at a time and just try to gobble up as many as I could. And so uh, as a mentor, as a speaker, as a writer, I continually work with words as a working with publishers. I, they have expectations for me about words. Can you hear my dogs? I'm sorry, this is really random, but we, my dogs have just decided to serenade us and I'm not sure whether that's coming through the podcast. Welcome to the country. If it does. So how do I keep my love, that childlike love that I've always had fresh? And for me personally, it comes in terms of retreats where I as a discipline, break away, and I simply retreat. Uh, I go on a prayer retreat. My husband and I give each other 24 hours a month to do this, and I don't go to ask anything. I don't go to find anything. I don't go because I've got these burning questions that I really need God to address so I can go back and do my thing. I take these 24-hour retreats, and they really are just a love offering. I say, I'm simply here to say, I love you. I'm simply here to be. And I tell you, these spaces, these disciplined spaces where I only do 
the first thing I was asked to do, which is be with him, it refreshes me uh, at, at levels I'm sure I don't even have words to express. It, it refreshes my loves. It refreshes my longings. It refreshes the things that remind me of God's pleasure in me and through me. I think that these set-apart spaces are critical. Uh, we, we're not going to get refreshed on the run. It just doesn't happen that way. We're not going to get refreshed by going from the adrenaline surge of the office and that meeting and that presentation to the adrenaline surge of a two-hour workout at the gym. <laughs> Those things all have their place. But there has to be a change of pace in order for that surge to normalize and for us to re-remember being and the power of being. And I find that that discipline is personally what keeps my loves fresh. I'd like to ask you, I'd like to begin right here. Is it possible to be somebody that's successful and at the same time live from a grounded place? I think that depends on your definition of success. Personally, when I think of the word success, Joshua, I think of living loved and loving well. That to me is my definition of success and entirely grounded in the reality of God's enormous depth of love for us. So living loved, I think is critical. I think there are many, many people who are successful professionally, but not necessarily from a deep sense of being loved by their creator or of feeling like they are loving others well. So is it possible to have the two combined? Yes, absolutely. But I think we always have to put our definitions, we have to continually be placing our definitions in, in the light and in response to reality. Um, so maybe, maybe our definitions continue to evolve as we do, and perhaps that's how they can keep pace with one another. Materialism, legacy, identity, idols, perspective, and insight. There was so much good there. 2018 sure was an incredible year for our show. And there is so much yet to come in this third year, beginning with our first official interview of the year, which right here in this moment... Stay tuned because we give you a sneak peek of that first official interview of the year for the show with Ramsey personality and wealth building expert, Chris Hogan. Um, as, a, as a financial coach and I'm working with them uh, and they're very skilled in their craft with what they do, but they're not necessarily smart with money or smart in dealing with life. Mm. And so I think it's this, this, this mindset, and I'm a fan of education. I've got multiple degrees, uh, but I think it's where you apply the wisdom. You know, that's where we have an opportunity to get smarter. Uh, when we apply knowledge and we understand, hey, these are some things that I need to learn. These are some beliefs I need to make sure that I have, and that I need the actions to go along with it. Okay, I'm just going to say this much. You will leave mind blown with what Chris Hogan has got to share with us in our next episode. 
I'm not gonna spill the whole thing because that is just not my style, but you did a study. I'm just gonna leave you with a little something. You did a study with 10,000 millionaires to discover what are the habits of millionaires, and check this out real, real fast. The top three professions of those 10,000 millionaires, we're, we're talking about millionaires here, included accountants, engineers, and teachers. So let's just say you don't want to miss what he has to say about wealth building that is accessible to everyday people. It's going to leave you mind blown. Thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and stay connected. If you have any comments, feedback, or invitations for speaking engagements, or would like to contact us for whatever reason, we would love to hear from you. You can email me at joshua.ogaldez, O-G-A-L-D-E-Z, at live, L-I-V-E, dot com. Also, you can find me on Facebook as Joshua Ogaldez and Instagram. We got a page for the show at Intersection Podcast. Be blessed. This is a new year. Let's keep building a legacy. Till next time, this is Joshua Ogaldez signing off. Grace and peace be with you, friends.